Welcome into a new episode of Get Fiddles and Paradiddles. My name is Chris. My name is John. And John, we are here doing this again. We are still in our series called Recording Techniques, and we're super pumped. I don't know if you guys don't know this, like you probably do if you're listeners, you know this, but John and I have spent the last 45 minutes talking about this episode that we're about to present to you guys. And we know it's, we're fixing to talk about the nineties, right? As you guys can see in the title, this is recording techniques, the nineties part one. And the reason, you know, I mean, the sixties was fine. The seventies, the eighties, these were all like, you know, single episodes, but John and I are musically children of the nineties. And we, we, we came into our own in this, in this, uh, in this decade for sure, man. Yeah. I mean, we, we couldn't condense this into one episode. I mean, I guess we could, but it'd be like two hours long. We could have, but it it, it had just been too, it had been too much. Been way too much. It'd have been like one of the new Star Wars movies, you know, where they just try to cram too much crap into everything. And and that's not what we're And then at the end, you just leave and you're disappointed. Yeah, exactly. Not, not a GMP, sir. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. we just do little segments here. We're in, we're out. Yes, the best way. Exactly. So uh, today is part one. We're going to get into the episode here pretty soon and um, give you guys a rundown of what part one will be all about. But John, one thing we really need to talk about. Okay, here we are. Yes, here we are in in you know the the summer, and our Atlanta Hawks are in the playoffs. How does that make you feel? Yeah. We're yeah, basketball in 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 the dead of summer. Yeah. Weird, honestly, weird. It um, is weird. You know, I, I when I, when I was growing up in the nineties, um, or not really growing up. I guess I was growing up since I was born. <laughs> I kept, <laughs> kept on growing, but I guess you know, you know, I'm starting to become a teenager. Um, you know, basketball was like probably my number one sport at really? that particular time. Yeah, That's man. Like crazy. I was so, big. So I play, let me play just put basketball. this out there. I've known John yeah, for but, years and years, and this I'm just now learning that, that, that John is a basketball enthusiast. Yeah, so, so, you know, I lost touch with it because basketball changed over the years. But in the 90s, man, that's when basketball was basketball, man. Mm, you know, okay. some people say that, you know, the mid to late 80s, that was kind of the, the heyday of basketball. No, man. I mean, you had just superstars playing basketball, you know, Magic, Michael, you know, Clyde Drexler, freaking Sean Kemp, Gary pa- I mean, just. Charles Barkley, Keem Olajuwon. I mean, just every, it seemed like everybody had a star on their team mm-hmm. in the nineties, mm-hmm. right? Not so much. If you go into the NBA now, there might be a handful of teams where you could probably say, Oh yeah, LeBron, he plays for the Lakers or, right. you know, you know what I'm saying? Like there, there, there's not the, um, there's, there's a lot of, uh, the NBA is top heavy, I guess is the word I'm looking for at this mm-hmm, point. Mm-hmm. So at any rate, yeah, basketball, man. I was a huge basketball nut, man. And, uh, you know, the Hawks had a little bit of success in the 90s, but not like they're doing right now, man. I mean, they're two wins away from going to the finals, yep. the NBA final. The big man. show. That's that's insane. That's insanity. Um, you know, uh, I hope, and I don't want to put this in the world, um, <laughs> but I have to say it as a native Georgian, I hope 
this doesn't end like I think it's going to end because, you know, um, we tend to have a tendency to uh, what the French call choke. Yep. Down here in Georgia. Somewhere. <laughs> of our teams along the line. Uh, but, gosh, man, it – this Hawks team, man, they're they're ballsy, dude. They've they got are. some. They've got they've they've got some brass, man. You know, they've got some fight in them. Got some, got some gumption. Mm-hmm. Is that what they call it? I like um, it. Just yep. it's crazy, man. It's super exciting. Uh, you know, the the whole city is kind of getting behind the Hawks. You know, this town used to be a basketball town. You know, yeah. it was it was a pretty, you know, um, pretty big big deal. The Hawks, you know, back when they had Dominique and mm-hmm. you know Spud Webb and all that stuff and. You know, it's a, uh, it's really bizarre uh, to see the Hawks really doing what they're doing because you know I kind of pay attention to basketball from afar, mm-hmm. uh, and if I'm not mistaken, the Hawks kind of sucked, man. They fired their coach mid-season. You know, it was just like, you know, we were, felt like we were kind of like. Not necessarily the bottom dwellers, but pretty daggum close. You know what I mean? And then all of a sudden, they just flipped the switch, man. Yeah. They just flipped the switch, you know, uh, made a coaching change. And uh, there you go. Um, which gives me hope for my uh, my Falcons. Yeah, um, Falcons. Yeah, come on. Makes you makes, makes you wonder, man. You know, it makes you really wonder. Um, all, all of the pundits that say coaching doesn't matter in professional sports are – are full of doo doo mm-hmm. because totally it does. That. that is that is the difference in professional in in professional sportings is coaching mm-hmm. putting putting your players in a position to be successful mm-hmm. right that yep. that is what separates the the uh, the cream uh, of the crop from the uh, you know from the driftwood if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's, a, there's a no, it's fine. I mean, there's there's so many people like my like yeah, like myself. Like I'm a I'm a diehard baseball fan, and not just like an Atlanta Braves fan because we're here in Georgia, but baseball in general basically consumes my life for for about five months. The last month is kind of like slowing down because football is about to start. Um, yeah. So I don't really pay attention to basketball, but to see the Hawks come up like this, I've been watching a few games. I've been keeping an eye on it. Um, cause you I mean, as a, as a Georgia sports fan, you just start to rally behind something, you know, like of you, course, get, you get, man. Pumped, you got man. To give me something, man. Give me, give me a glimmer of hope, man. Give me something, man. Cause I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I, you know, I'm not a big soccer guy. I know our soccer team won a championship, but I'm just not there yet, Chris. Okay? I'm not, I'm there, not yet. there yet with I'm the soccer. Yet. I just can't, yeah. man. You know, I know the games, uh, going to them live. They're cool. They're great. Um, I, I totally respect the athletes cause playing soccer, I have a good friend of mine who's a soccer player, um, you know, and played it collegiately. Um, and you have to be an athlete to play soccer, but man, it's just, it's like hockey, man. I just, I can't do it, man. I can't yep. get into it. Yeah. It just doesn't keep my attention, yep. you know, um, it probably has a lot to so, do with what you're raised. You know, you and I were raised it, around it, baseball. It does, we were man. raised it, around it, basketball. It, it is. And it's just mm-hmm. ingrained in, in that that youthful DNA of, like, this is what sports looks like. We watched our fathers do it. We watched our grandfathers do it. Um, yep. Just the same for the, the people that are super into soccer. You know, they probably have some kind of ties to it when they were younger. And if not, they probably stumbled upon it when they were still in kind of, like, adolescent years, developmental years. And that could be all, all the way up to 25 years old. So, 
yeah, it's uh, it's definitely not something that I've actually gotten onto, uh, either soccer nor hockey. Yeah, I mean, it's just you just can't do it. But yeah, you know, I want I want one of our major you know uh you know red white and blue sporting teams mm-hmm. to to come we you know the last championship was 95 the Braves mm-hmm. if i'm not mistaken was it 95 yeah. yeah i mean if we're talking if we're talking baseball football uh, you know basketball the big, yeah you know the holy trinity of sports mm-hmm. here <laughs> right it's referring to right? right you know no all due respect to soccer you know i don't i don't wish it uh any ill will or anything <laughs> like that and i don't want to alienate any of our listeners who are huge soccer fans um I hope, not. I hope you're not saying mm-hmm. that just you know it's just what we were raised on right just Absolutely. like you said yep. it's kind of the environment but yeah it's super exciting um I, i'm hoping that the hawks can i don't know man i feel like if we can get to the finals man we got a shot man yeah we got a shot dude. yeah you know and that's all that's you know and and honestly um you know my this is kind of i'm gonna get off on a slight tangent and I'll keep it quick. My, my, my favorite sport is college football. I'm a huge Georgia Bulldog fan. I've been, that's always been my favorite sport. And the problem with Georgia over the years were, was we always thought that we were the big bad bully when we were actually not, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we talked about how big and bad Georgia was, but we did nothing on the field. You know, during the Mark Rick years, it was always, you know, he had a run. He had a good four, five, six-year run, and then after that, it was just diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. And now Georgia is relevant every year. And that's all. I just I just want a shot. Give me a shot, mm-hmm. okay? Give me a chance, and then I'll, 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 I'll let the chips fall where they may, and I'll be good with that. Right. But – yeah, I mean, it'd be unrealistic there, to think you're going to win the World Series every year, win the Super Bowl every only, year. There's a reason yeah. why one team, only one team, can win, man. Right? There's, right. You know, you just uh, want to get to the show. Like, let's let's just try. I just want to. I just want a shot, man. Mm-hmm. Just give me a shot, man. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. consistently. Let me get to a, a a playoff scenario to where I can at least have a chance to uh, write my own destiny. Right. Right. So that's where the Hawks are at, man. Uh, yeah, two man. games away from the finals. Super excited for them. I hope they pull it out, man. Yeah, I man. really do. It'll be great for the city. We'll be rooting. Yeah, it'll be really good for them. Um, well, John, let's get into this thing, man. Um, yeah, man. This we're is, gonna. Well, we've been waiting on this episode since we we this this whole idea. You know, we started. You know, um, you know, talking about these. Um, like recording it, yeah, um, just decade recording, decade. Decade, you know, techniques, and you know, as we were kind of uh, extrapolating these ideas out, like we knew when we got to this decade, like we probably were going to be getting into some minutia here, and yeah. here we are. Here we are. We and this is the reason, you know, again, when we have to break it into two parts because it's it's not going to be easy to to really kind of segment this stuff. We, we're going to do the best that we can. Um, since this is part one, John and I have agreed that during this episode, we're going to discuss the monumental shift in recording techniques, as the episode has been called. The whole theme has been re- the recording techniques um, yep. of each individual decade. So, um, yeah, we're going to talk about the recording techniques of the 90s, and specifically as a little... Uh, teaser the rise of pro tools uh pro tools became oh, super prominent in the 90s and as as you know as we know it overtook it's everything the industry, it's it's industry standard i yeah, mean it's, it's the industry like, standard it, it is it is the thing so you guys hang yeah. tight with us for a little bit we're gonna take a short break and we'll get into it 
Okay, John, here we go. Part one, Recording Techniques 1990. Yes, so, yes. Um, 80s. The first thing I think we have to talk about is home recording. Like, yeah. um, you know, this wasn't something that was possible in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. In the mm. 90s, Mm-mm. the rise of home recording, which is something we take for granted now. I mean, uh, you guys might know this, but John man. and I, we, we actually record, like he'll send me riffs. I'll send him drum parts and like just to have the ability for us to be able to record, whether it be an hour away from each other or maybe halfway around the world. I feel like yep. we take it for granted a little bit because technology Absolutely. is what it is and we take it for granted. But in the eighties, like technology, the end of the eighties, technology was becoming like more and more compact. It was coming cheaper to mass mm-hmm. produce. Yep. And because of this, it was kicking off like a home recording revolution, right? And so yeah, through, yeah, almost like an arms race, if you will. Right. right. And it's funny you use that that terminology because as the '90s came along, Tascam uh, introduced a piece of gear that you and I are very familiar with since our, our time in, in music stores, um, the Porta Studio. Right, the Porta um, Studio, the man. Tascam a- Porta Studio. <laughs> like we couldn't keep those things in stock. I mean, all the way up until the late nineties, like we, yeah, it was ridiculous. Right. Even, even, so, so the first iteration of the Porta studio was on a cassette tape, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It was two channels recorded into a cassette tape. Boom. There you go. I guarantee you, I'm willing to make a prediction here. Okay. Of, of Nostradamus, like, uh, 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 caliber here. You guys get ready. Get ready. Here it comes. You got to think about how many riffs and ideas that were demoed on a Porta studio that made it to the record. Now, not like the finished product, but the 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 um, the impetus of of a riff or the or the idea or or the the melody was put down on a on a Tascam. Yeah. I would probably say 75% of everything that came out in the 90s was probably fleshed out on a Tascam. On a Tascam Porta Studio. I, w- I bet you're right because I mean this this is this I mean this this would be this would be the actual definition of home recording, right? So whether yep. you were recording you weren't recording like maybe full-blown stuff, but if you had the ability to plug a microphone and a guitar into this little thing and press record, God knows what was probably like you say, you know, it was it was the all the, all the demo the stuff of songs right. that we hear from the '90s be, begun there. Yeah, think think about all of the ability to you get a melodic phrase in your head. Mm-hmm. Go get your task cam, boom! You can get that idea down, and it's there. It yeah. goes nowhere. It's yeah. in the Rolodex, right? You can. You can come back to it. You can revisit it. It's it's always there. But I guess to kind of sum up what my my point of what I'm trying to make is is that giving you the capability to record from wherever you are at in the world, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That is that it, it changed the game, Chris. It changed the game. Right. It really did. It really did. So that was like that was like a big big turning point, but. As John and I started, you know, kind of researching more and more of of this stuff and like, you know, what what was the difference between the 90s from the 80s? Because, you know, we know we, we covered the differences from the 80s to the 70s. And it feels like if you were looking at a graph, you know, there was a big spike in the 80s. And if uh-huh. that was a spike of maybe 100, the 90s was a thousand. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, it, you got to think just in general, man, across the board, like technology, man, like the advancements in technologies were, you know, you're almost advancing 10 years in a month. Right. Right. Uh, you, you would go from literally one extreme to the other within four to six weeks. And in, in, in the music industry, this was just, you know, to me, a, a continuation of the start of the golden age of music. And I've talked about this in other podcasts. I think we're in another golden age of music right now, Mm -hmm. you know, where everything like technology is just, it's, it's exponentially growing. Everything's getting smaller. There's more memory, you know, things are getting faster. You know what I mean? Like it's just, everything's at your fingertips Mm -hmm. just about. And the other thing is, is the affordability of this stuff. And I think that's probably where we need to touch base with as well as like people can afford this stuff, right? The, the, the Jimmy's and Joe's, mm-hmm. right? The, the garage banders, right? That don't have a record deal, right? That are just trying to make some CDs that they can sell at their show, right? All right. They have the capability of doing that at this point. Right. Right. Now it's not, it's, it's not cheap, but you can make it happen. You know what I'm saying? Like you can make it happen. Mm -hmm. So the, the, I just think the, 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 the technological advancements was happening so rapidly, man. Like it was just blowing people out of the water with what they could do and what they had access to. Yep. Yep. Big, big difference. Um, while we're kind of talking about home recording, um, one of the things that definitely popped out in the early 90s, and when I say early, um, I feel like we have to kind of define that, John. Early 90s would be anywhere from like 1990 to 1994. Yep. From 95 yep. on, we see a massive shift, and that shift was Pro Tools, and we'll get to that. Um, yeah. So when we say early 90s, we mean 90 to like 94. So think about the albums that you, you know, if some of you are listeners that, you know, were influenced by 90s like John and I were, some of the biggest albums that influenced me and influenced John uh, were probably before 1995. Many of them were after it, too. Um so you have to think about like the way those things were recorded, right? But one of the things that really stood out to me was that if we're staying in the home recording range, if we're staying in the early '90s range, and I didn't even, I didn't even realize this was that Line Six introduced a product called the Pod, and when they dropped that on the consumer market, not only like the, the Tascam Porta Studio making it super easy to to get those ideas down quickly, yeah. Now you had a piece of gear that you didn't you didn't have to have all the amps. And all of the cabinets and all of these things like this all was, the effects. was modeling was all... this stuff, right? I can't speak to it very clearly, but I know that John can. So, John, tell me about your impressions of the Line 6 Pod oh, like when it first so, came out. Yeah, this was kind of like the um, – I'm trying to think of the right um, phrase. Or, so, everything that you said – it started to, you know, it started to bleed into every aspect of, of music with respect to the line six pod. You are able to basically conjure up all of these different sounds without having to have any of the physical gear. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
like you don't need a hundred watt amp because there's a hundred watt amp modeled inside of the pod, right? You don't need to bring these refrigerator racks of effects, right? Because it's all in a pod. If you're just going to do a quick two song freaking jingle, okay? You know, um, what I think for me now, now, you get, it's still super primitive, even though it's groundbreaking. Like it's, it's, it's still pretty primitive. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's still the functionality of it as far the tweakability, I guess, was still pretty primitive, but the concept laid a foundation that, that, that literally completely started another arms race in the guitar business. Okay. You got to think about, in the nineties as a guitarist, you have all of this technology coming out. So you've got all the effects pedals that are, that are starting to come, uh, the different unique effects pedals that are being manufactured, all of the boot. This was the start of the boutique amplifier. You know, uh, you've got, um, all of these different, um, technological advancements working its way into the guitar field into the guitar player's atmosphere, right? Mm-hmm. And then this little thing that's literally looks like a kidney bean that has everything right there at your fingertips. You know, fast forward, you know, 25 years later, in line six, you get to the Helix, which is completely changed the game for guitar players. Right. But that, that thing right there at the time, everybody, even myself included, it was just like, eh, this is, this is garbage. Nobody's going to, this is, this is not going to work. Right. Right. This is not going to work. This is cute. Okay. It's cute. It's really nice. Look at that. But man, was I wrong on that. You know, um, well, I, I can remember, awesome. you know, the times at, at the music store, just like, just like you're saying, it was not taken seriously. Like the people that worked there, like we sold the crap out of them because people, you know, it was marketed well, you know, the, sure, the Guitar was. World magazine kudos, was doing yep, a yeah, great job marketing that six, thing. Man. Yeah. And your line six reps would come up in there and they would be shaking hands and like, you know, blowing the product up and we sold the crap out of them. But I mean, at, at the heart of things, I remember those guys being like, this is trash. <laughs> like This is really garbage. No, you would. And, and, uh, you know, the pros, you never saw, you never saw Jimmy Page with a line six kidney bean. Exactly. That may be but, an actual quote from like one of the salespeople in the guitar department. <laughs> For <yeah>. real. <laughs> No, Jimmy seriously. Page didn't use it. I'm not going to use it. You ever see, you ever, I don't think I've seen a kidney bean on Led Zeppelin physical graffiti. I don't right. eat it. Exactly. So, exactly. But, but yeah, it was, you know, um, it, amongst the guitar professional community, it was, it was not taken seriously, man. It just wasn't, like I said, it was cute. And it, 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 in the back of the guitar player's mind, it made you think, wow, wonder where this could really go in, say, 10 more years. Mm-hmm can this really replace my tube amp and my effects pedals and go direct to the front of house? Is this really where this was going? Right. And at the time I was like, no, yeah. of course not. No way. What yeah. Thank Man, here I am now, you know, all digital, yeah. you know, so you're in the, it, you're, it, in the, the you're, you're waving the helix flag. Yeah. I mean, it, look, I, I, I just, I can't believe 
the uh i mean yeah it's like the guy that bottled water man you know what i mean like mm. why can't i think of something like that mm. you know what i mean like mm. yeah digitally recreating uh analog things with ones and zeros you yeah. know i mean obviously i'm not smart i'm not i don't know how to code or anything like that but man what a it's freaking genius man yeah. having all that stuff at your fingertips because you got to think man by the time you plug in that kidney bean into this badass ssl console or neve console and you you know a little tweak here a little tweak there a little compression there dude you won't be able to tell the damn difference man mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know right. And, right. and that's that 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 piece of gear for the guitar player unbeknownst to guitar players changed the game of guitar playing but it really didn't take hold until decades later but that thing right there that freaking kidney bean man was the start of an arms race in the guitar world it really was it really was well another thing that john actually brought up to me um as we're moving through like recording techniques something that i didn't actually research that well until john said something about it was um again uh you know um Tascam with their Porta Studio, uh, Alesis was the company that was pushing something called ADAT, A-D-A-T. Oh, buddy, the ADATs, man. Mm-hmm. Holy and I cow. I didn't realize ADAT basically lived and died in the 90s like that fast. Like, But that, that goes to show you, though, just like you said, technology was moving so fast that this seemed like yeah. a great idea, but it was killed quickly by Pro Tools. Yeah, I mean, because you, you, it was the perfect storm for for out with the old, in with the new. Mm-hmm. You had technology advancing so rapidly. That's what I'm saying. Like, okay, so from in, in four years, you're getting 20 years of technological advancement in a four-year span. Yeah. At this point, right? Could you imagine like, somewhere, thinking, there, somewhere thinking, thereabouts, right? Yeah, thinking the way that you're that you're putting this, like I'm thinking about how – you and I, let's just say we want to record an album. We've got no ideas. Yeah. We want to put this album together. We've got a whole band. You know, we've been wanting to do this thing. And so we're going to spend maybe three months, six months, eight months, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And, and we had the time because the record label, here we are, it's the 1990s. The record label is giving us time to record this album. So we choose to go into a studio, we write, we demo, and we start to record. Meanwhile, technology is moving around us so fast. How do you decide on a medium to put it down on? You know what I mean? Like, what is the best? What is the worst? What should you do? I mean, I can only imagine the decisions had to be led by the producer and only Oh, the yeah, producer. it was... Yeah, yeah, the higher-ups were, you know, you follow the money, just like with anything in life, man. You follow the money. That's mm-hmm. where you'll find the – that's where the truth lies, right? Mm-hmm. So in terms of the ADAT, what made, um, you know, what made it so appealing was the idea of you can still get multi-track recording. Like you could daisy-chain these ADAT recorders together, right? Um, you know, you didn't have to just, you weren't limited to just one. Well, I read that um, you could daisy chain up to 16 together and each one could that's do right. eight tracks. <laughs> eight, eight tracks. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, you know, I mean, there's some huge records. I mean, like Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pills done yep. on freaking eight at Probably dude. the biggest record that thing, yeah, from the nineties. Yeah. That, I mean, dude, that thing probably sold, I don't know, 15, 20 million records. Okay, but but 
that was the swan song for tape. Okay. Mm-hmm. That was it. Like that, that was the, um, the swan song. That was it, man. Once that, um, once technology got to the point of pro tools, it was never the same. Like it was, there was no going back, man. It was out with the old in with the new. Yep. Yep. So anyway, we won't spend much time with ADAT because ADAT didn't spend much time with us. Um, no, it really did. Yep. I mean, you know, and there's, there's, there's tons of cool information online about ADATs and, you know, um, you know, they definitely have a thing to them, man. There's a, there's a fidelity to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I mean, hell, you can go on reverb and get an ADAT for like a hundred bucks, man. You know what I mean? And, you know, it's, they, they have a thing to them, but it, you know, they're still tape. They're still temperamental. They're hard to, they're hard to maintain. They're hard to store. They're hard to keep, you know, um, it just, it wasn't a viable solution going forward for the future of music. And it literally, as fast as it came in, it went out just as fast. Yeah. Well, the thing that replaced it was Pro Tools. Um, thing to note, ADAT, ADAT kind of faded around 95 and, it was also around 95 that Pro Tools was fully realized. So one thing I'd like to take a second and do, John, is kind of give a little bit of a backstory for Pro Tools. Um, some people may yeah, not know yeah, this. Yeah. I personally did not know this. I mean, obviously, software takes a lot of, you know, it takes on a lot of shapes and forms before it gets to its final version. So um, I want to read something really quickly. I'm just going to kind of take a little tangent here and, and, and give you guys kind of a, a background on on Pro Tools. Um Pro Tools didn't start out as Pro Tools, so it was called Sound Tools to begin with. It was the precursor to to Pro Tools. It was introduced at the NAMM show in 1989, and Pro Tools was a workstation running something called the Sound Designer 2 software. So this was the software that was like behind it all. And This was the beginning of the doll right here, okay? This was the beginning of digital audio workstations right here. Go ahead. Right, and it says, so Sound Designer 2 basically laid the groundwork for for DAWs, as you're you're saying. And it did it, this is what's mind-blowing, it did it with two tracks available for recording. So prior to this existing software, any software that existed before sound tools would only have one track. So to have two tracks was like, Oh my God, software that can record two tracks. Meanwhile, at this same time, 1989, 1990, 1991, we have, of course, typical, um, analog recording that's happening with 24, 48, whatever, and ADAT, you know, machines that are recording hundreds of tracks, these digital things are only, you know, it was mind blowing for them to be able to record two tracks. Right. Yep. So two years later, this is like the big leap in 1991. Let's put a pin in that and think about all the albums that came out in 1991. As pro tools is about to make its giant change here. Sound tools would evolve into pro tools software platform. The first true DAW slowly pro tools would creep into the studio, not as a revolutionary new platform, but as a new tool in the production process. So, this was probably seen almost like a a uh, Line Six Pod. You know, it was something yeah, extra. It, it wasn't the main. It wasn't the main focus, but it was extra. It was extra, right? Mm-hmm. It was just like a. Uh, it was a tool in the toolbox, right? Mm-hmm. You know, for you know, if you're a drummer, it's like having different snares, right? Right. Uh, if you're a bass player, it's like having a four string or a five string. You know, if you're a guitar player, it's like having three guitars and each guitar is, has a different tuning. You know, it's just, it's a tool. It's a mechanism. Right. 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 
Um, and it, 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 it just changed the game and it brought, it brought the, um, the, the analog consoles that were most people, you know, most, even most mid-level studios couldn't get access to, man, but you could get this digi design interface Yep, and multi-track on Pro Tools. <laughs> That's wild, you know. And in, so, in, in the span, in, in the span of four years, yeah, in the span you know, of four talking, years, we're we're talking like ninety-one to the end of ninety-four. It's like, you know, making its its way into everything, everything, you know. Yeah, and it's it's to note here that it actually broke away from being, I guess, incorporated with Sound Tools at all in 1995. Um, you guys should look up this name as soon as I say it. Butch Vig, V-I-G, Butch Vig. V-I-G, yeah. He ran a studio called Illustrious Smart Studios. Um, yep. If you are interested in the developmental part of what audio sounds like now from a digital platform, this is the guy that started it. If there was someone out there that says, I'm going to swallow the pill and be 100% digital, this was the guy to do it first, Butch Vig. Yep. Uh, he used the platform extensively while making the debut album for his own band, which was called Garbage. You guys, mm-hmm. some of you may know Garbage. If not, again, pause this. Please go listen to Garbage. Understand that this was the very first complete album recorded using Pro Tools. In a computer. In, in a computer. A, in an it was, computer. It was, it was a computer. Like, whatever computers looked like then, whatever he had in there, it was a computer. Start to finish, yep. the first Garbage album, 1995. Um, Beck's album, Odelay, from 96, was was a pretty big one as well. Um and if you know a song called "Living La Vida Loca" by Ricky Martin, this you was may the have first. Heard of it. Yeah, you may have heard of it. This is the first number one single to have ever been used uh, using Pro Tools. Um, it, it obviously has had a huge, huge impact because uh, it's still, in my mind, like the reigning king of DAWs, digital audio workstations. But its influence, not only to musicians and producers alike, has has been able to break that out. For into other DAWs, like you know, mm-hmm. whether that be uh, Logic Pro that Apple uses, or yep. uh, there's there's multiple ones out there. I mean, you could go you could go uh, Fruity Loops for a while was called Fruity Loops, and so now it's um yeah, what's it called? Um, is it Reason? F- FL Studio? FL Studio. Yeah. Thank Reason you. Yeah. Reason wasn't Reason? a full blown DAW. Now it is. Uh, so there's a lot of companies out there that have made leaps and bounds from from these things, and I think. The whole purpose of this series that John and I are going through is to understand that where we are now, as John says, is like this, this, uh, what, what was the word you use? This, this recording error that we're in, um, uh, arms race. Uh, no, you said it was like a golden age, I believe. The, the golden age. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The reason we are where we are is because of moments like, like pro tools, the things that led up to pro tools. So it's, in my mind, it's almost like Jesus Christ. It was like BC and then there was AD, right? Yeah, yeah like Pro Tools yeah, is yeah, that yeah, line that's in totally the sand. Totally a good analogy. You know, that's that's the line in the sand. Yeah, and you got to think too, man. Like the old saying, you know, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Mm-hmm. I believe is the mm-hmm. phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, you can trace back the the a- actual 
the the beginning and the end of a lot of things to Pro Tools. The beginning and the end of analog, the beginning and the end of record companies, mm-hmm. right? Because think about the recording budgets going from the 80s to the 90s to the 2000s. Like, it's on the decline. Yep. Right? Because everything is so much cheaper to do. You've got, you know, the start of streaming, you know, Napster's coming in, you've got file sharing that's going on. Mm -hmm. Everything, it's like a snowball effect, man. It's like the dominoes, right? You tump one domino over and then it just creates a chain reaction and it sets off an entire wildfire in the music industry, man, across the spectrum, man. It's crazy to that point. Yeah. To that point, think about um, this. This is actually noted in a couple of things when you and I were were kind of setting this up is that something like Pro Tools eventually became, you know, every for every version that they add to it, there's another feature and another feature and another feature. And one of the ones that's pointed out is that it allowed you to use effect plugins, right? Think about how we use plugins now as almost as if it's like, you know, just a, a switch that we flip. We want some compression, yeah. grab, grab a compressor plugin or grab this yep. effects thing, or maybe grab that EQ plugin. Yep. But when plugins came out, one of the first ones, which is it's funny now because it's still used, you know, just right there in tandem with Pro Tools, was Antares Autotune, which came out in the early '90s, right? Autotune, and the I mean, first song. Of, this is this this would be a great this would be a great um, a great trivia. Uh, trivia question. What was the first song to use Autotune? Shares 1998 hit Believe. I mean, think about it. If you go back and listen to that song. You know, obviously everybody knows what autotune is now, but like it is so, it is like the star of the show. Yeah. It's not Cher's vocal. I mean, obviously, look, I hope I'm not offending any Cher fans if you're listeners, but when you listen, like when I listen to that track, that's the first thing that I noticed is like, damn, the auto tune is at a hundred percent wet. Yeah. <laughs> you know they what I'm using, saying? They were using that because it was like, this is a new thing. We got to be the first ones to try this thing out, right? Right. I mean, and if they you're were, gonna do they it, were liberal. If you're gonna do it, <laughs> yeah. If you're gonna do it, you may as well go balls deep. Okay, let's do this thing. Yep. Okay, yep. and they and they did, but yeah, man. I mean, just that 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 the ability. Just think about. You know, if you had a time machine and you were able to go back to like the early, you know, 80s to some of those huge pop records like, you know, Michael Jackson's Thriller. And you're like, oh, let's auto tune. No, there was no auto tune. Those cats, those cats recording those vocals, it was they were in tune or they kept doing it until they got the right tape. Right. Right. Or until they ran out of freaking tape in the studio. But that's what I'm saying. Like. You don't have to be perfect in the studio anymore, right? The, the, those days are over. You can fix that. You can copy and paste, and you can, you know, uh, the the everything gets put on the grid. Yep. Right. Yep. That this is where the grid comes in. This the, is the, the beginning grid. of the grid. Yep. The grid, right? And. But but you still had the best of both worlds. Don't get me wrong. You still had a lot of guys that were using Pro Tools as like a tape machine, and they were recording everything through their analog preamps and into their analog mixing console consoles. 
to 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 the Pro Tools multi-track, then playing back track for track into the analog console for mixing. So they would record into Pro Tools, do all their multi-tracks into Pro Tools, send all the Pro Tools files back into the analog console so they can mix, right? I know so you guys you can't see. see I know you guys can't see this, but I am literally smiling and shaking my head as John just thinking about I'm, the amount I'm, of work I'm, that would go into this. Yeah, yeah, man. It it it, it this this literally was a God, I couldn't imagine being an, an engineer back then. And I would just be, I'd be crapping in my pants, man. Like I would, it was so exciting, man, because literally everything's at your fingertips. Right. You know, it's, it's just all right there. And, and to be able to be in a time and space where that is coming to fruition is just had to be the bee's knees, man. It must have been. Well, part of part of Pro Tools and part of going digital, as John said, like everything becoming digital um, with like, you know, the rise of Napster and things like this. Um, one thing that I learned through this was that the mastering of these albums that were being recorded in Pro Tools could be manipulated in a way where as previous recording techniques wouldn't allow for. Um, mm-hmm. And the reason for this is, and this complete, I mean, literally, you want to talk about a blown mind. So yeah, this will, this will, this is a, uh, this is a mind, it's, mind it's a, screw right here. It says mastering was the site of one of the most significant revolutions brought by digital audio. So here's, here's, here's the mind blow with vinyl records. There was an upper limit on a record's loudness. If mastered too loud, the record would shake the needle and disrupt playback. Yeah, I mean the thing would just be bouncing left and right off the off off the. If you look at a record underneath a an atomic microscope, I don't know what they're called, Chris. I don't know, but if you look at at, at a vinyl record under a microscope, you will see like these V channel grooves. Right. Okay. It's a lot of peaks and, and valleys. It almost looks a lot like of a peaks yeah. and valleys, mm-hmm. and it's the it's the um, what it is is a snapshot of the digital sound being uh pressed or or i don't know copied into the vinyl right right right. so if you're if you've got frequencies that are so loud that they vibrate out of these little channels on the on the record it your 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 record's going to be skipping all over the place right right so so the loudness thing was 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 important the reason it could be used in the 90s is because music wasn't being created for vinyl anymore it was being created for cd and with cd playback loudness wouldn't affect cds right and that medium also had like clear maximum amplitude so they could say wait all this can be louder now so not not meaning turn the volume up on the amplifier it meant once it was mastered now whatever kind of limiting had to happen didn't have to happen. All of that went away. Yep. It all, it all, it all goes away at this point, man. So you've got, and you can read up on this, uh, yourselves. And I encourage all of our listeners to, it's a, it's a fascinating read and you can definitely go down a rabbit hole, but most people perceive volume as the louder, the better, the quieter, not so good. And that's still, that's still the case now, because when you see things like when you go into like Apple music or something and it says mastered for iTunes or made for Apple music, this basically means that it's, it's made for digital playback. 
It's made for digital playback. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's made to be presented in that medium. Right. Okay. Just like the records of the of yesteryear were designed for vinyl. Mm-hmm. You know, out with the old, in with the new. Here we are on to the CD, where you your your fidelity level is completely through the roof. So you've got the start of what. A lot of people call the loudness wars, mm-hmm. okay, during the which, 90s, which right? Which is still kind of going on now in, in some which, ways. Which is still still the case. As I'm a newbie at, um, you know, engineering and mastering, uh, I, I don't even want to call myself a ma- like just recording, period. I'm just going to say that because people that are mastering engineers, they've got like you <laughs> – these guys have to do it for a while, man. Okay. This is not something that you can just get a freaking MacBook and say you're an engineer master. <laughs> you know, it's like, which most people do. And I feel some kind of way about it. And I don't, that's a whole other subject for a different day. But at any rate, um, as I'm starting to, you know, record and produce my own stuff, I'm learning about all these different techniques. You know, I'm a student of music, so I'm constantly learning and absorbing. And man, it it even affects me because I have to catch myself, man, when I'm mixing my own music, man. It's like loud is not better. Right. It's just loud. Yeah. Okay. But when you get, you know, when you get, uh, you know, uh, Winston, the A&R rep from Atlantic Records, and you bring in this mix, and it's it's loud, it's up front, it's in your face, it's freaking compressed. The drums are just massive. The guitars are massive. You know, everything's in stereo. It's just, it's massive, right? Mm-hmm. But what it is, it's volume. It's the perception of volume that you that 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 tricks your brain into thinking that yeah, that's what. That's what needs to be on the radio. That's the that's the single. And those guys were those guys were walking into those rooms to listen to that stuff, whether it be, you know, demo versions before they cut money to these bands to say, okay, go record that because we approve of it. Those same guys had been listening to the way vinyl, the way, you know, mastering for vinyl had been coming out. So you they walk in there and they hear this music, whether they liked it or not, and it was loud, like you're saying, like it was fresh and new to their ears. So they, you know, that's the reason it kept going on and going on because those those big wigs they responded to that they responded to this perception that loud means better that loud means better that's right man so what what you had was you had technological advancement that was happening so quickly um, to kind of circle back to your plugins uh, but you know I think at this time you know most people were still using the hybrid uh, hybrid approach where they were still using analog outboard gear and Pro Tools. Mm -hmm. So what they would do is they would just send all of their tracks into these limiters, man, like these, what they would call a brick wall limiter, right? And for for everybody out there that, that doesn't understand what limiting does, it's pretty much just what the, the, the word limit is it just there's a limit right there's think of it like a house okay and you're inside a house that has a ceiling 
in it, okay? Let's say you got 10-foot ceilings, okay? You're not bringing in a 12-foot basketball goal inside a 10-foot ceiling, okay? That's mm-hmm. you got 10 feet. That's it. So when you introduce music or not just music, that is not the 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 nomenclature. When you're introducing sound waves, Chris. Mm-hmm. Okay? Right? Sound waves. When you're introducing waveforms into your DAW and then mastering them, they're going to have peaks and valleys, right? So what your limiter does is is it sets that ceiling. And it says to all of your waveforms, you're not going to penetrate mm-hmm. this ceiling. Mm-hmm. Okay? So what you do is you set your limiter at a certain threshold and then... All of the big peaks and valleys, also known as dynamic range, right? Dynamic range being the loudest of loud and the softest of the soft. Your your dynamic range is going to hit this wall, but you're still going to be able to control volume. You can still make it louder without it distorting. Does that make right. sense? Is yeah. that a good yeah. description yeah, I think of, that's of, good. of what's going on I mean, here, yeah, it's, Chris? It's basically like, you know being able to see those peaks and valleys like mountaintops, but instead of the mountain ever reaching its peak, it may only get 60% there. But imagine if you only saw a mountain, if we're looking at a mountain just like standing on the ground and you could see that peak, and we decided to take off like 30% of it, we still have a lot of mountain to work with, right? We just took like that 60% version and just made it louder, right? Then we still got the, the, the biggest part of that recording was still there to present, and all we had to do is crank it up, right? But just the word you up, just man. used, the word you just used is dynamic range. And John and I, we've talked a lot about this, is that word dynamics means that the dynamic, I should say, means that most of those recordings, those early recordings when the loudest loudness wars began, means that these these out al- these songs and these albums were not very dynamic. Right, they probably didn't no. have a lot of nice up and down range. To yeah, there's just like not a one, character. Right, yeah, like one screaming volume. Right. So if you go back and and just to kind of circle back to the '80s a little bit, if you think about the recording, think about like the biggest pop hits, and you got to kind of you know if you have a home studio at home, you can kind of put your you know your producer engineer cap on. Think about listening to a pop song. Think about, I'm just going to throw something out like, like Billie Jean, mm-hmm, Michael mm-hmm. Jackson. Okay. Think about listening to that song through a computer's ears. Okay. You're seeing waveforms like the, the, the dynamic range of that song is like flat dude. Mm-hmm. Okay. It doesn't, there's nothing that builds up. You know the choruses are 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 where they're at. the 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 verses are where they at. They're at the bridge is where it's at. It's like there's no dynamic range, right? When you get to the '90s, okay, you've got all this technology available to you inside this DAW to where you're using what's called automation. And what automation does is is you can set a point in this file to where you can make it get louder, right? Mm -hmm. So if you want that big chorus to stick out, then you're going to set an automation to where you bump up the dB by, 
you know, half a dB or a, or full dB during the chorus. And then you bring it back down in the first. Right. And see, all that automation was great to set up. Whereas before, I mean, you, you and I have seen videos from the seventies and eighties where there's like four or five guys at a mixing console being told, turn up seven, 10, 11, and 12. When we get to the course, we're going to push those up a little bit. And there's like, there's like eight hands pushing these things up, literally pushing and pulling individual them down. faders up. Right, right. Right. So that didn't have to happen anymore. That didn't have to happen anymore. And that, think about that. Like that's not a, an exact science. You're dealing with human beings. You're dealing with, you know, having to do something on tape. And then if you don't get it right on tape, you got to cut the freaking tape up, splice it up, redo it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, they did it, obviously, because there's great records that, you know, just that it, they, they made it work. But the the dynamic range of songs from the 80s and the dynamic and, and, and I guess this kind of. I, I, I would feel comfortable saying across pretty much all genres of music, going from the 80s to the 90s, like the dynamic range of of songs and records across genres was completely, completely different. Mm-hmm. Was, like I said, use Billie Jean. Everything, when you listen to it, like it's all just, it's flat, right? right. Every All the volumes sound the same. Nothing gets louder during the chorus or the verse. You know, the drums don't come up during the during the cor- the chorus. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Right? Yep. Does yep. that make sense? Yeah, I mean, all that, too, that was the 80s. I mean, that was 80s stuff. Like, that would have been probably, I'm sure there's the contributing factor was that it was a drum machine, right? There's no human thing. There was some some synthesizers kind of thing going on there. And some, some of that was probably programmed in. However, you know, especially the drum machine part. So that never would have felt like it would have come up anyway. Right. So that's to even, to even like give that a drum machine and say, Hey, we're hoping for some, some life or some humanized part of this. You know, that was, that was an eighties thing where they're dealing with like, how do we humanize a drum machine? Um, which probably made those complications come, into the production and into the mixing and mastering portion of it. Right. And that's the thing too, you know, when you get just a, you know, and I don't want to, you know, spoil the next episode, but like, think about some of the rock records that came out, like, especially like the alternative rock, like, you know, your Pearl jams and your rage against the machines. Think about how massive the drum sounds were. Think about how massive the choruses were. Yeah. Right. Think about how, just big and massive these hit pop songs were starting to become in the 90s like live in la vida loca yeah, okay yeah okay listen to that song even if you can't stand ricky martin listen to that song and don't tell me that by the time you get to the chorus you're not tapping your foot right okay and there's a reason you're tapping your foot is because they're probably riding automation and everything in the chorus comes up a little bit gets a little louder right? Gets a little more exciting, right? It builds up, it's building up into this chorus. And then you get to the verse and it kind of settles back down. Then it builds up into another chorus, right? That's what, that's what your, the, the digital audio workstation and pro tools allowed you to do is be able to manipulate every aspect of these waveforms man from you know from soup to nuts man yeah and it was just changed the game and we're still you know it's it's like equal temperament 
You know, that's the tuning system that we still use to this day that freaking Mozart created back in whenever. Okay. So some things are just so good that, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to move past it. And that's where we're at right now, man. Most, I would say not even most, all major studios are using a hybrid approach. They have an analog mixing desk and they have a Pro Tools rig. Mm Mm-hmm. Everything's being multi-tracked into Pro Tools, and then it's being fed back out of Pro Tools into their analog consoles so they can mix in the analog console, and they can apply plugins digitally as well. So you get the best of both worlds. You get all this analog outboard gear. You get the plugins digitally. And most most times now, man, like the, the, the plugins are just as good as the analog outboard gear. I mean, then I'm not just saying this because I'm poor and I can't afford a lot of this stuff. I mean, like <laughs> a lot of the, these people that have this expensive analog outboard gear, they're using plugins because it's workflow, man. You know, they don't have time to go back there and tweak knobs. You know, they can save a preset, store it, recall it. Boom. You're moving to the next track or you're moving to the next session. Right. Cause that's, that's what it's about. You know, time is money at this point. So, just the 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 ability to make things loud is a game changer and it's still they're still doing it to this day chris yep still you know doing everything it. everything man everything is just it's all super squashed and loud right you know there there are exceptions obviously but most of everything that you're hearing on the radio is Super squashed and loud. And super loud. <laughs> super loud. Well, all this is super fascinating to me. Um, the 90s, I think, yeah, is such a can, turning we, point. We can, yeah, we can go on for, for, for days and years about the 90s. But, man, this, is, this, was, the, this was the start of the new normal yep. in the music industry. Yep. In um, 95 and, and onward. Which is wild, right? I mean, you think about that. We're we're closing in on thirty years of similar type of recording techniques. Um, so John and I thought about this episode, knowing that we would reach probably easily an hour talking about just the impact of the recording techniques of the '90s, and we've probably achieved that. Um, yeah, what we, we really try to keep this do. thirty forty minutes, <laughs> and it's just you know it's it's no, hard, man. There's uh, so much meat on this bone, yeah, man. The nineties is yeah. just it's a lot to chew. Um, so to tease our next episode, which will be part two of this, uh, John and I are going to take some time and explore the albums that were massive in the nineties. We're going to cover a lot of those nineties albums, whether they influenced us or not, just how impactful they were from, from rock to metal pop, maybe even some countries. I'm sure nineties country was pretty huge. Nineties country was the golden age of country. If you ask me, I mean, that was the last, that was the, um, you know, it was kind of like the last hoorah for that for that music because when you started to get into two thousands, that's when mm-hmm. the shit started like started to become a it uh, started turning into crap a hybrid yeah. animal. Yeah, yeah. Excuse my French. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, it, it just completely shifted, and I guess you know all genres of music do it 
to a certain degree, don't they, Chris? I oh, mean, sure. like, yeah. I mean, I think there's... that genres do artists, the artists that are best that have like staying power are the ones that will shift, you know, things like the Rolling Stones or David Bowie, you know, like artists mm-hmm. like that, that would shift. Uh, but there's even some modern artists that do it as well. You know, they shift along and, and kind of go with the times. Um, yeah. So in part two, John and I will, uh, will definitely feature some of those, those albums that were huge standouts in the nineties, but more importantly, John and I will feature albums that influenced us. Um, oh yeah. And this is yes. what I'm super passionate about. Um, oh, I can't wait. Yeah, I can't dude. wait. I mean, I was like, just come up with, like, I was like, come up with three albums. And he's like, eh, I was like, okay, come up with five <laughs> albums. And he was like, eh. <laughs> okay, That's come tough. up with 10 albums. He's like, uh, yeah. okay, I'll try to do 10 okay. albums. Yeah. I'll uh, try to do 10. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try, man. Yeah. Give it a college try. But th- I, the thing that makes it so hard for me to do that, and I think you can probably, echo these sentiments man it's like you know for me you know I'm, I'm a teenager you know this is where the rubber meets started to meet the road for me musically right i'm starting to sort of figure out that okay i think i want to do this mm-hmm. like i want to i want to be that i want to sound like that i want to be in a band i want to i want to tour i want to like this is what i want to do right and those you know were the albums saying? that were like the soundtrack. While while that realization was happening, you had a soundtrack going on. I am one hundred percent there with you on that, and uh, I can't wait to discuss them. So yeah, uh, it's yeah. going to be good stuff, man. Can't wait for you all to. Uh, you're going to have to just uh, hang tight on that, man. It's gonna it's gonna gonna come at you, and we're gonna. A uh, lot, lot, uh, lots to get into on that one. Uh, I'm still. I've got. I think I wrote down twenty five records. So I've got to narrow it down to 10. Let's see if we can go down to 10. So that means each of us are going to be able to touch on 10. That means that's 20 plus. We're going to highlight some, maybe we'll, we'll highlight like the top 15 records or of, of the nineties or something that was impactful, whether it was from a sound standpoint or, you know, I prefer, we we may not, we may not like dig deep into them, but just giving them an honorable mention, if you will. I would prefer that whatever we bring up would be more on the basis of recording techniques. Um, and maybe the impact it had on the music industry, not necessarily like sales numbers or popularity or Grammy winning. I mean, all that's subjective, right? So, sure. um, you know, let's, let's stick with like what, what impacted like the recording techniques and maybe revolutionized where we are now, you know, mm-hmm. uh, For sure. some cool stuff. And so, I, yeah. yeah. And I think that's going to help me weed out some of this stuff is, you know, having it fit into some of that framework that you mentioned, Chris, that, yeah. that'll help me weed it down uh into a uh nice little you know this little package present. yeah a little package yeah. <laughs> very cool well guys we hope you have enjoyed this um as i'm sure you can tell we are super passionate about 90s music we're passionate obviously oh, about yeah. 90s recording um but 90s music is is something that resonates in our soul even to this day um yeah, yeah, big time, big time. Big time. So, I uh, hope you guys will, will will hang tight with us and 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 join us for part two. But but John, it's it's good to get back uh back at it and and doing this thing. And um, for you know, sure, man. One of the things I really want to shout out is just just all the people that uh, reach out to us, whether it be email or social media. Um, you guys are awesome. It's so cool to to just hear from people, uh, just enjoy listening to what we have to say. You know, John and I were talking about just podcast in general, kind of off on a tangent just real quickly is that, you know, I think podcasting at first kind of starts from a, a selfish place, you know, like you, yeah. you and I, we know that we, we come from the same, we're cut from almost the same cloth and oh yeah, for sure, man. 
we feel like we have, you know, a lot of things in common. We know we do. And so, Hey, let's start a podcast. Right. And, and it's, it, what's cool is like the podcast community is so vast or you think it is until you start realizing just how many people just inside of your little bubble, because, Hey, let's start a podcast. You know, it just, it's just, it's like this little thought bubble. We'll start a podcast. Yeah. And then all of a sudden these people gravitate towards it. It's so cool how the internet works and just technology is. It, it is. Internet's cool, man. I mean, yeah, I never, you know, when I was conjuring up this idea, I was like, man, I, I had it in the back of my mind. I was like, Nobody gives a shit yeah. what we're talking about. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And it's just not true, man. People, you know, love content creators, man. Yeah. This is just the new, this is the new television for people, man. For sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is. And, and definitely stay engaged with us. Yeah, man. Um, hit us up on social media if you have anything that you want us to kind of, you know, dive into. Um, you know, we've got, um, you know, we're definitely looking to do more interviews this year coming up. We're going to try and, you know, use some of our connections and see if we can't interview some some guys yeah. and, and people in the industry because I think that's kind of what a lot of people want. You know, they want us to, uh, you know, kind of interview these people and get their insights into things. And yeah, uh, we well, definitely I mean, got we, that. we were on track to do that, but man, COVID definitely. Yeah, everybody COVID, with the, yeah, right, the right hook. So, yeah, yeah we, thanks, we got to get that. Yeah, thanks, China. No, thanks, e- easy, thanks. easy. Appreciate but, it. And now we've been yeah. canceled. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm now not we're playing. canceled, John. I, I, stri- I stri- yeah, they're they're gonna blacklist us now. I'm <laughs> sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. That was totally not 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 appropriate. It was totally not leaked from a you know a lab in China that studies that stuff. Not at all. I have no just not not saying that. No. no. No, anyway, <laughs> um, but yeah, we're, 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 uh, we're, we're going to be keeping, keeping this train rolling, man. We're yeah, going to be, uh, into nineties part two, nineties part I'm two. Really looking forward to this next episode. I hope we can keep it under an hour. Mm. <laughs> That's the goal. That's we'll the see. goal. We'll see. I've got a feeling that, uh, we're going to need to, uh, tell our family members that, uh, this one might go a little extra. Yeah. Go ahead and pour you an extra cup of coffee, John. We're going to, we're going to do yeah, this I'll, thing. Yeah, it's going to get to the weeds for sure. For sure. Well, guys, thanks for hanging in there with us. Thanks for uh, checking out part one. We'll be back in just a couple weeks with part two. John and I, like we say, we're super excited. And uh, John, what what is it that happens at the end of the episode? What do we say? Oh, we are out.